It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The Washington region is notorious for not being able to deal with snow. We had our first winter storm of the season, five or six inches. The schools are shut down today for the second straight day. But there's an absolutely outrageous and dangerous situation just south of the nation's capital on I-95 in Virginia, where people have been stuck for 11, 12, 20 hours on the major highway along the East Coast that has been utterly shut down and paralyzed by the storm. This morning on Morning Joe, NBC reporter Josh Liederman reported from his car, did a live shot from his car. He said, Mika, this is a bit of an insane and dystopian experience. Uh, he had left D.C. last night about 7.15 p.m. Fifteen minutes later, standstill. The car hasn't moved since then. He reports that there are thousands of cars on I-95 where people have slept in their cars overnight without food, without water. It's 26 degrees outside. Um, people are freezing. And this is a complete and total failure by the Virginia state government. This storm has been predicted for days, and yet the I-95 has turned into a parking lot. There's no National Guard out there, you know, to help people who are stranded, to try to get the highway reopened, to provide food and water for people who are shivering in their cars. This is really outrageous. This is uh, Governor Ralph Northam's last week in office. And man, did he blow this test. And I just, you know, anybody who's ever been stuck on a highway, even in less uh, excruciating conditions, can certainly relate to how trapped you feel when you just can't move. Can't move forward, can't move backward, can't get to an off-ramp. And um, reporters also, you know, trying to... uh, I guess Lederman posted an update a little while ago saying that... uh, He's moved a little bit, but still on that highway. All right, I have so much to get to today, and I want to start out with this stunning sports story. And it's a story that transcends whether you care about the National Football League or not. But over the weekend, as many of you probably know, Antonio Brown of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, guys had a lot of issues in his football career, um, decided... Into the, I guess it was about the third quarter of the game, and he didn't want to play anymore. And so he walks off the field. He takes off his jersey. You've probably seen all the pictures of him shirtless. He throws the jersey into the crowd. He throws some pieces of equipment at the crowd. And he just leaves the stadium. He's gone. He's out. He doesn't want to play anymore. Unbelievable. And here's a piece in Sports Illustrated that says that since he was teaming up with Tom Brady, first at the New England Patriots and now, of course, in Tampa Bay, uh, here are some of the things that have happened with Antonio Brown. He sent threatening text messages to a woman who provided allegations of sexual misconduct to Sports Illustrated. He said in an interview with ESPN that he never got into a conflict with any of the women, and he was actually the victim, despite the evidence the magazine had uh, gathered in police reports and sometimes his own social media accounts. But then the Buccaneers signed him anyway. And I, I talked about this, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Antonio Brown was caught using a fake COVID-19 vaccine card. He didn't want to get the shot. He wanted to continue to play. So he got a fake card. And then he unloaded on the press at the post-game, you know, news conference. Well, all you want to talk about is this. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about the game. Again, he paints himself as a victim. He's blaming the press for his outrageous behavior. 
in, I, I think it's undoubtedly illegal. It's like having a fake ID, all because he did not want to get vaccinated, but he wouldn't be honest about it. Reminds me of Aaron Rodgers to some degree, except Brown took the next step and actually got uh, the fake credential. Um, and here's what Sports Illustrated says. The NFL is served by a media apparatus that is reliant for, the most, for most outlets on access, which is why few have sufficiently pressed Brady, uh, the Buccaneers coach, Bruce Arians, or others in the organization on the matter of Brown's past. Brady, Arians, and um, the team have been enabling Antonio Brown at every turn. It's true, the coach is saying, oh, you know, we, we feel for him, he's got mental issues, we've got to help him. Uh, creating an alternate reality in which he was accountable for nothing. Of course, after he uh, stripped down in the third quarter of that game against the Jets on Sunday, uh, the Buccaneers said they'd had enough and that he was no longer with the team. But they haven't quite dropped him from the roster yet. I don't know whether that's a procedural thing or whether they want to declare him a free agent. He could sign with another team. I, amazing to me who would, would sign with him. And, and since that walk-off, um, and by the way, the coach reports that he had a couple conversations uh, with Antonio Brown. He didn't say he was injured. It'd be one thing if he hobbled off the field with some kind of injury. Uh, he's released a rap record. Uh, he's posted pictures of himself smiling. So he's having a fight all time, although obviously he has undoubtedly forfeited you know, millions of dollars by walking away from the Buccaneers and ultimately his contract. And it is true. Um, it's easy now for sports journalists to pile on, but how, you know, look, everybody reported uh, on the fake vax card, and, you know, it made some headlines a couple of years ago with the problems, of the accusations of sexual misconduct. But basically, you know, what the sports world cares about and what sports journalists care about is, you know, can the guy score touchdowns? Can the guy catch great passes from Tom Brady? And so he's just been given a pass, so to speak, on this outrageous conduct, and look, is he suffering from mental health issues? Maybe, probably, I don't know. But all of this, I mean, is there anything worse you could do in professional sports and just walk off? Also lie about your vaccination status? I mean, I, I just to me, it's unforgivable. If he ends up with another team, either this season or next, it will show you that you can do just about anything if you have athletic prowess and still get paid lots of money to play in the NFL. All right, story number two. I have been fascinated from the beginning by the Elizabeth Holmes saga. And late yesterday, she was found guilty in the fraud trial involving Theranos on four of 11 criminal charges having to do with wire fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud. Uh, the jury took a long time, complicated case. The case went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, you know, and Elizabeth Holmes, if you're not familiar, if you didn't see the HBO movie, you know, was lionized by the media a few years ago. She was on magazine covers. In fact, I think it was a very glowing Fortune magazine profile. It was actually admitted as evidence in the trial. She was the female Steve Jobs. She always uh, wore the black turtleneck. She lowered her voice in television interviews. And just everybody wanted a piece of Elizabeth Holmes because she was one of the few apparently successful female CEOs in Silicon Valley. And she was interviewed by Jim Cramer on CNBC, by Charlie Rose on PBS. I mean, everybody wanted to share in the success story. And the only problem with this success story is that it was built on a pack of lies. 
what a jury has now determined to be criminal fraud. Theranos uh, actually convinced a couple of national drugstore chains to use its new blood test where you could just do a pinprick rather than having to go into a clinic and have blood drawn. And that little pinprick of blood could be put into a special machine and abracadabra magic. Uh, it, it could be used to determine you know, whether you had all kinds of medical problems based on that little bit of blood. That didn't exist. It wasn't real. It was just um, a bit of science fiction that Elizabeth Holmes used to raise many millions of dollars from investors, including some of these, you know, big tech entrepreneurs out in the valley. So interesting take here. Everyone's got the story now. You know, and I guess she's become notorious. Um, the, aside from the main story, uh, New York Times has this sort of sidebar piece saying the Technorati in Silicon Valley have been trying to separate themselves from uh, Holmes and Theranos uh, out in Palo Alto. Uh, but the fraud trial of Elizabeth Holmes has shown that just as Bernie Madoff was a creature of Wall Street, and Enron represented the get-rich-quick excesses of the 90s, Theranos and its leader were very much products of Silicon Valley. Um, the usual BS refrain was, well, Theranos was more than a healthcare company. It was a healthcare company more than a tech company. It raised money from wealthy people outside the tech industry, while insiders saw through the hype. But the testimony and the uh, evidence presented at trial, it's a four-month trial, um, showed that really this company was very much a product of the Silicon Valley culture. She used um, big tech, famous venture capitalists, people like Larry Ellison, co-founder of Oracle, to give herself credibility. She was welcomed into the inner circles. Um, she concocted this menu of hype, exclusivity, fear of missing out to win over investors. Um, she embodied the startup hustle culture by optimizing her life for the maximum amount of work. She dismissed the haters um, and anything that interfered with her vision of a better world. She parroted mission-driven techno-babble. Uh, it's an amazing rise and fall. And obviously the jury did not fall uh, for her part of her defense that said, you know what, it was all the boyfriend's fault. Sonny Balwani, who's also been charged in the Theranos scam, uh, will be tried separately. And they, you know, thousands or many hundreds of texts were released between them, a lot of romantic talk, but also, you know, we're going to take on uh, the skeptics and the haters and all of that. And that became part of her defense. She was controlled by him. She was abused by him. Well, the jury wasn't buying it. And to this day, we would not know, we might not know about this, if it was not for one single reporter who I interviewed uh, on Media Buzz. John Carreyou of the Wall Street Journal. When all of the tech press was just singing the praises of Elizabeth Holmes, he dug in, he developed sources, and he was able to show that this whole thing was built on a house of cards. And the journal published that, despite the fact that its owner, Rupert Murdoch, who of course also owns uh, Fox News Media and News Corp, um, was an investor in this. Theranos and stood to lose a lot of money. And that, to me, 
was a triumph of good journalism. The old-fashioned kind of journalism where you do the digging, where you do the work, where you don't just read the press releases, where you aren't just part of the hype machine. This was a shameful episode for the tech press that presumably has led to a lot more uh, skepticism about these wondrous uh, startups, or has it? What will happen the next time? Some company claims, doesn't have to be in the healthcare field, uh, claims to have um, found a way to basically just print money. And by the way, you know, a lot of people have just been looking at this as a, a personal saga, and it is. Elizabeth Holmes, you know, rising to the top uh, on uh, waves of media hype, and then the whole thing collapses. But if this hadn't been exposed, these two major drug chains would have adopted this blood test. And that means, you know, uh, Jeff Greenfield made this op uh, observation on Twitter. You know, untold numbers of people might have been told that they had some kind of disease and they would go seek treatment, and that would have been wrong, or been told that they were fine and they didn't seek treatment, and that would have been wrong. I mean, this could have been a calamitous public health emergency for not for the fact that one newspaper and one dogged reporter exposed this as a complete load of crap. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three, Twitter. I think I have mentioned on the podcast has permanently suspended Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, by the way, this is her personal account. She still has a congressional account as a member of Congress. But there is a huge uproar over this. Uh, just to catch you up on the details here, she has been suspended a number of times by Twitter and warned. And you only get a certain number of warnings and then you are permanently banned. And this all has to do with COVID-19 type tweets. Um, it, over the weekend, she tweeted this following false statement about extremely high amounts of COVID vaccine deaths. There is no evidence that there is any significant number of people dying from getting the vaccine. In fact, the vaccine saves lives. Some people don't want to get it. That's fine. That's an argument over mandates. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene included in her post a misleading chart that pulled information from a government database a decades-old system that relies on self-reported cases. Look, there may be some people who um, died while they had COVID but died from other things or maybe just happened to have gotten a booster shot but died from other things. So Twitter says, look, this is the fifth strike, you're out. The fourth strike came uh, just in, over uh, the summer when she falsely posted that vaccines were failing. Well, I mean, anybody looking at this, you know, yes, you could say the vaccines are not preventing uh, numbers of people who have been fully vaxxed from getting breakthrough infections from Omicron. But anybody who's followed this closely knows nobody ever said, I mean, if somebody said it, they misspoke. You will never, I guess Rachel Maddow once made this statement, and she either misspoke or didn't know what she was talking about. You will never get the virus if you get the vaccine. What science promised and has delivered is that if you get the vac if you get the vaccine and you do happen to get one of these breakthrough infections, you will not have to go to the hospital in the vast, overwhelming majority of cases, and you will not face the prospect of dying. We've got more than eight hundred thousand Americans who have died uh, from COVID nineteen. Many of them before there was a vaccine, but many of them since there has been a vaccine. Anyway. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene goes off on, on Twitter, says it's the enemy to America and can't handle the truth. 
And you know who's defending her? Kevin McCarthy. Now, Kevin McCarthy, the House uh, Republican leader, you would think would not go out of his way to defend Marjorie Taylor Greene because he was part of an effort to strip her of her committee assignments over past, you know, wild QAnon statements and so forth. Well, McCarthy put out a statement yesterday saying Twitter is working to silence Americans, uh, including a sitting member of Congress, didn't mention uh, Marjorie by name. And he said, diversity of opinion is the lifeblood of our democracy, and yet that fundamental American values, it value is under assault by big tech entities that have amassed more power and more control over more speech than any other institution in history. Well, that last part is true and troubling. And by the way, companies like Facebook and Twitter uh, bring this upon themselves because there have been a lot of high-profile instances where the suspensions, I mean, Donald Trump is one, uh, have been aimed at conservatives or Republicans. And that doesn't mean that Twitter was wrong to act in this case. If You know, we, we all say, oh, we don't like misinformation and disinformation. Well, if it's about a public health emergency, which is what the pandemic is, isn't Twitter doing its job? If it repeatedly warns, I don't care if it's a member of Congress or not, not to post things that are false about the effectiveness of vaccines. And then finally, when that person, in this case Marjorie Green, keeps doing it to say, okay, under our rules, you can no longer have a personal account. Uh, well, also Facebook um, now says that she was suspended, that Marjorie Taylor Green was suspended for 24 hours for posting something similar. Facebook has joined Twitter in censoring me, says the congresswoman. This is beyond censorship of speech. I'm an elected member of Congress, representing over 700,000 U.S. taxpaying citizens. Okay, well, you know, censorship is a term we usually uh, associate with the government. You can denounce this or not denounce it or say it's serious or say it's nothing. But Twitter, like Facebook, like Google, like Amazon... Um, like Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. They, these are private companies. They can kick you off whenever they feel like it. Of course, if they do that, uh, and it seems like there's political bias involved, then they uh, undermine their claims to be bastions of free speech. And that's why Donald Trump is suing Twitter and Facebook. Uh, a spokesperson for Meta, that's Facebook, said a post violated our policies and we have removed it. But removing her account for this violation is beyond the scope of our policies. And guess who else is backing Marjorie Taylor Greene? Wait for it, Donald Trump, who just put out a statement. I just saw it uh, a little bit ago. Twitter is a disgrace to democracy. They shouldn't be allowed to do business in this country. Marjorie Taylor Greene has a huge constituency of honest, patriotic, hardworking people. They don't deserve what happened to them on places like low-life Twitter and Facebook. Everybody should drop off Twitter and Facebook. They're boring, have only a radical left point of view, and are hated by everyone. Well, there is a lot of resentment toward these companies. Uh, and whether they're boring, you know, is in the eye of the beholder. And obviously Donald Trump has a major axe to grind because he has been banned. And I disagreed with that. You know, if it was justified at the time in the wake of last January 6th, fine. A year later, a former president can't be on these platforms. But when he says they only have a radical left point of view, I mean, lots and lots and lots of conservatives have huge followings on Twitter and Facebook and lots of engagement. So that's a little bit of a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, but, you know, when Trump uses this formulation, they shouldn't be allowed to do business in this country. He's done that before. What is he talking about? Under what law, under what rule could the government 
come in and say, you know, leaving aside potential antitrust violations because these companies have gotten so big and sometimes they do use bullying tactics against smaller competitors. Putting that aside, when it comes to content moderation and what uh, many on the right are now calling censorship, under what law would you say, Twitter, you can't operate in the United States of America? We don't recognize, uh, we think you're unfair and you have to shut down. I'd like to know what the legal basis for that is. There isn't any. We'll see how these lawsuits, including the Trump lawsuit, pan out. And as I say, I mean, they are their own worst enemy in terms of, you know, it's more, I think, than just perception and political bias. These are left-leaning companies. I'm not denying that for a second. Zuckerberg doesn't deny that. Jack Dorsey didn't deny it when he was running Twitter. Um, and maybe Twitter could do a better job of explaining itself and these actions rather than just putting out statements. Get somebody to go out and give some interviews and explain, you know, that they don't take any pleasure in this, but felt that they've got these policies for a reason. If you repeatedly violate them, you're gone. All right, story number four, the post-Pelosi House of Representatives. Washington Post has a piece saying House Democrats are bracing for a turnover in leadership next year. Uh, Then he actually even goes beyond Nancy Pelosi. I'll get to that. But she has been the House Democratic leader for almost 19 years. But when she became speaker again for the second time, this is, of course, I guess she's in her second term now as speaker in this round. Um, Nancy Pelosi made a pledge that she would serve uh, these two terms and then she would step down. Now, I always felt like if things were going well for her, you know, uh, if if she's uh, doing well, if the Democrats are passing legislation, if she's enabling the Biden agenda, um, she'd say, you know what about that pledge? I've changed my mind. And she would win again. There's no indication she's going to do that, although she could. But the problem is, she knows, you know, I know, everybody knows, all the House Democrats know, that they're going to lose the House, almost undoubtedly, by a whole lot of seats come this November. And after two terms, two rounds, I should say, as Speaker, I don't think Nancy Pelosi wants to go back to being House Minority Leader at the age of 82 or whatever she would be. Um, And the Post piece says, you know, she's had a historic career, you know, first female Speaker, trying to end George W. Bush's Iraq War, helping to implement Obamacare, uh, leading uh, two impeachments of Donald Trump, and pushing much, but certainly not all, of Biden's agenda through the House. The big problem, of course, is the Senate. The early favorite to replace her, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Um, And the Post piece says that whoever replaces Pelosi will face what's the obvious challenge here, which is holding together the the centrist liberals, I use that term in air quotes, in the House Democrat, among the House Democrats, and the progressive caucus, the squad, and all the people who want to pass, you know, $6 trillion more in aid, but can't get it through the people who are blocking it, mansion, cinema, in the Senate. But there's also this old guard, and using the word literally, Behind Nancy Pelosi, the number two um, Democrat in the House is Steny Hoyer. He has been around for decades. He is also either 79 or 80. And Jim Clyburn, who is, I believe, in his late 70s. Um, So then the question becomes, well, who should, are all of them going to leave? Hoyer wants to be House Speaker, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, And so the Post went out and interviewed a bunch of members who said, look, uh, it's probably going to be Hakeem Jeffries. Um, 
Jim Clyburn, you know, I suppose, he's the number three. I suppose he could make a run in it, like Hakeem Jeffries. He's also African-American. And he said, and so the, to the notion that, like, he's old and been around a long time, he says, look, if it wasn't for racism in the segregated South, I might have had a long, uh, earlier career here, and I might already have left Congress. Quote, if I had gotten elected in my 30s like so many of the white folks did, I might have retired by now, but I didn't get to until my 50s because the laws worked against me. Now, what the piece makes clear is that um, the consensus among House Democrats is the next speaker can't be a white man. So that's one among many reasons that Hakeem Jeffrey seems to be in the lead. But, you know, it's become a very woke party. And um, I'm not saying it shouldn't be Hakeem. I'm not saying it shouldn't be Clyburn. You know, that's up to the Democrats to decide when they most probably are in the minority. But just to sort of rule out anybody on the basis of skin. You know, on the other hand, there's never been, I have to say this, it is a shameful part of our history, there has never been a black House Speaker. There has never been a black majority leader in the Senate. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, moving on now to story number five. One million cases. One million new cases yesterday of the coronavirus in the United States of America. Remember, it got shot up to about 400,000. Then it got shot up to 580,000. And now we have this record-shattering day as the Omicron just works its way. Undoubtedly, you know people who've gotten it. And thankfully, it seems to be a mild diversion. Writing in National Review, Andy McCarthy uh, goes after Fauci for saying this about the CDC's new guidance. If you are asymptomatic and you were infected, we want to get people back to the jobs, especially those with essential jobs. If we were dealing with a real plague, says McCarthy, the insanity of this would be so obvious that even the media Democrat complex would not be able to speak of it without snickering. If you're sending people who have the virus back to work, you are putting them in danger of spreading it to other people. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, We've lost our minds, says Andy McCarthy. And he said, look, I'm enthusiastically pro-vaccination. I got the jab as soon as it was available to me. I was boosted weeks ago. I've insisted that family members um, do uh, the same. So this is not a screed against vaccination. He said, I would like to prevent everyone from catching the scourges of viral rhinitis, also known as the common cold, and influenza. But I don't want to prevent that outcome, an inevitable one for all of us at some point, nearly as much as I want us to live in a free society. By nature, liberty entails risks, an enormous number of which are more perilous than COVID. Freedom is America's foundation, but it necessarily involves no small amount of annoyances and inconveniences. He goes on to say that... um, you know, that now that we have the vaccines, at least for those who are taking it, and Omicron is milder, the chance uh, and improved therapeutics, if you do get COVID, the chance of death or serious illness is vanishingly small. I think more people, not necessarily just conservatives, are coming around to this view. It's at the heart of the debate about whether we want our schools to remain open. That's turning out to be hard for some schools because there's teacher and staff shortages because of Omicron. Uh, Do we want businesses to remain open? You know, I've referred to what's going on now as a bottom-up shutdown. You don't have the governors and the mayors saying we are absolutely going to close businesses. They might do mask mandates. They might require vax cards. 
uh, as I think in New York City, to go into a lot of places. But they're not ordering shutdowns because they don't want to cripple the economy, especially, you know, for all of this, you know, million cases in one day. It's a staggering number. But then you look at the death toll. And, you know, we've been in the Omicron surge for well over a couple of weeks, time for hospitalizations and deaths to catch up. And the death toll is not rising. It's actually tapered off in many regions. So that's where we stand. It's um, We're going to have to live with this, I think, and with these huge numbers, at least for the month of January. And then we'll see where we are. And by the way, just as I sign off, I'm sure you have followed uh, the tweets from AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who went to Miami for a few days while COVID was ravaging New York City. I mean, my view is like even a member of Congress is entitled to take a vacation. There's a little picture of her without a mask, but she was dining outdoors with her boyfriend. And, you know, at the same time, you know, she had beaten up on Ted Cruz for leaving Texas during an ice storm and going off to Mexico. So it's certainly fair game politically uh, to go after AOC for being down in sunny Florida while New York City was in the throes of this uh, crisis. But then she came back uh, with a couple of tweets in which she said, uh, I guess all these conservatives are criticizing me because they're sexually frustrated and they really want to sleep with me, which is why they fixate on me and women and LGBT plus people in general. And she added, you creepy weirdos. Uh, so this other piece in the National Review says this is a, oh, Rich Lowry says this is a classic if ham-handed instance of trying to define conservatism into a psychological disorder. The simpler explanation is the right, especially the extreme, extremely online right, is so obsessed with AOC because she's a socialist celebrity and extremely online herself. It doesn't need a psychosexual explanation. Look, I laugh when I saw her rebuttal, and you know she is somebody who is a national celebrity because of her use of Instagram and Twitter and so forth. Um, doesn't have a lot of real power in the House as a second-term member of Congress. Uh, but, you know, if she's going to go after Ron DeSantis, by the way, she went after the governor of Florida for kind of getting off the grid for a couple of weeks um, while Florida is experiencing also just a tremendous surge in COVID cases. It's really worrisome. Um, but it turned out that at least on the day that she was criticizing him, criticizing uh, Governor DeSantis, he was with his wife, who's developed cancer, you know, visiting a doctor or a medical facility. And then she never acknowledged that. She never sort of corrected the record. So, you know, you do this sniping thing and the satiric thing and the finger in the eye thing on Twitter, it works both ways, you know? You, uh, you slap people around, you're going to get slapped. Um, and... That's just the nature of the world we live in. Speaking of Twitter, which I've done a lot of today, uh, thanks for listening as we head into this new year. Happy to uh, have the opportunity to share this time with you. Hope you'll subscribe to our podcast in a lot of different places, including Apple iTunes. And we're back here tomorrow with more Busby. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.